Go ahead and make your way back to a seat. We'll get going. Um, we get started. Did anybody not get a bulletin? Because the reflection questions are not going to come up on the screen. Yeah, there we go. I was like, no, I don't really want any paper. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, sure, thanks. There's some over there. Over there. Um, any others? There we go. Um, there we go. Oh, good to see you. How are you doing? Good. All right. There we go. How's everybody doing? I'm all right. Knee deep in the Christmas season. Trying to figure out, you know, how all that's going. Um, did you, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it through really ahead of time, and then what I'm about to say it came this morning, so it's interesting, but did you enjoy uh, what the kids were doing when we first started? Um, when we started the series, we, we said that one of the central issues was the person of Jesus, and and we started looking at Colossians, and, and we kind of framed it, and we framed it throughout the whole time we've talked by saying there's, there's really one question you've got to get the answer right to, and there's one. There's a lot of questions that it's important to have the right answer, but there's one that's essential, and that's who Jesus is. Who is the person of Jesus? What has he done? Uh, and that's a question that has eternal consequences, whether you get it right or whether you get it wrong. Um, and then to hear the kids this morning uh, that on Wednesdays as they've been coming together in that interesting uh, kind of tweener gathering there, um, that they have been connecting to, isn't that what they're called? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of weird. Tween, you know. Oh, yeah, that would sound bad, wouldn't it? Wow. More people might come if we do that, though, you know. Um, that they have been uh, taking the, the, what we've been talking about on Sunday and then working it through the same way we do in the rest of our community groups and, and how it applies to their lives and, and understanding who Jesus is. And, and this morning, uh, as I knew they were going to do that and, and was thinking about that, but uh, I hadn't really thought through really kind of the unique and, and wonderful implications of that for their lives, really, just thinking that at that age they're, they're, they're having the opportunity together to process who Jesus is and, and what difference it makes at 11, 12, 13, and 14 in a way that I didn't do and didn't even have the opportunity to. Um, and thinking about this this series, and thinking about this season, and thinking about how we've taken the last several weeks to to look at how Paul has specifically unpacked the person of Jesus to this church in Colossae, and, we're, and we'll continue on with that this morning, and and how and the hope that that would be some sort of steel or some sort of antidote to the to the chaos that is the holiday season in our lives, that we might understand a bit more about why we do what we do. And so to hear them and think, wow, they're really getting a chance to think about this in an age that I can't imagine what my life would have been like had I began to process that and Jesus intersect my world and, and begin to, to, to rearrange my soul at such an age and then to learn together to live that out through these different stages in life. And I was thinking about it, and then Ray called. And for him to call me on a Sunday morning, uh, something, was, something was going on. Um, he was reading a Time magazine article, and I want to share this with you as we, as we talk more about the person of Jesus and why it's important to understand in our souls who he is and the difference he makes in our life. Uh, the most recent time, is this the most recent one? I didn't even look at the date. Is this the most recent one? Most recent time, I don't know if some of you get it, the list issue. 
um, asked some prominent celebrities to nominate the person of the year. Um, and this guy, I guess he's a, he's a celebrity if you're into Nobel Prize winners. Um, I don't know that any of you would probably know his name, but he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and he, he pioneers uh, microcredits in, in foreign countries. But he nominated Barack Obama, and, and this statement and this comparison and this contrast and what I'm pointing out is nothing about Barack Obama. And it's nothing about the man Barack Obama, but it's about the importance of understanding who Jesus is and what he has done, because I want you to understand I want you to understand how people conceptualize the difference that's needed in their life and the places they run to find the joy, the hope, the security, the certainty, the assurance that they're definitely wrestling and looking for. This man says that amid all the terrible news about such calamities as the financial crisis and the food crisis, he, Barack Obama, stands out as the overwhelming good news. The overwhelming gospel, good news in the midst of uncertain times, in the midst of calamities, in the midst of crises, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of lack of security, in the absence of joy, the overwhelming good news for not only this country, but in his whole statement, if I read the whole thing, the world is this man. It is imperative. Again, it's nothing about him. Not talking about him. It is imperative that you get the answer right. Who is Jesus? What difference does Jesus make? What difference does Jesus make in your security, in your assurance, in your joy, and in your hope? Because there's one thing he's got right. There are times amidst our generation that are difficult, that are uncertain. No matter what generation comes in our history, we don't know what tomorrow holds. But I can guarantee you that the president-elect is not the overwhelming gospel for our security and our assurance and our hope and our joy. It, it is primary that we get the answer to that question right. Uh, and so to hear the kids talk about that and to go to the Bible and begin to look their own scriptures up about who Jesus is and what difference he makes. and I think about at 12, they might be able to process Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life that the way to real life, the way to, the way to life beyond existence, the way to life with security and with joy is Jesus. Well, that's unbelievable to think through. And so as fun as it is to get the kids up and, and let them do the do, don't miss the larger implication of what's going on. Don't miss the larger application to their life and to yours. It's essential that you know who Jesus is. It's essential that you understand what he has done. It's essential that you begin to take who he is and wrestle with what he has done and how it applies and, and begins to transform who you are as a person for your security, for your assurance, and then ultimately for your joy. And we've talked a, a bit about the person and the work of Jesus um, in Colossians and how Paul has pulled it out. And we've tried the last few weeks to kind of shape some of it through the lens and, and repeat the, the understanding of how the person and work of Jesus impacts our lives but brings joy. Joy is markedly absent in a time of uncertainty. When you are uncertain about something, you can pretty much guarantee that joy is probably not present in that circumstance. When you have a lack of security about something, you can probably be certain that joy is probably not lingering around somewhere in that circumstance. And so when you lack a sense of assurance about Jesus, when you lack a sense of assurance about your 
relationship to God, when you lack a sense of assurance and security in relation to your sins being forgiven, you can guarantee that joy is probably not lurking somewhere around in your soul. And one of the things I think is just overwhelmingly tragic about the church in our culture that I think a lot of these crises and circumstances are bringing to light is that our joy has been found and we have searched for joy in lots of places other than Jesus. And the joy that we find was extremely temporary and ultimately eternally extremely hollow. And so the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and our understanding of Jesus means the world, means all that it can mean for who we are and how we understand ourselves and how we experience real and lasting joy. C.S. Lewis said that it's the Christian duty. Christian, listen to this. If you're, if you're a Christian, it's your duty to be as happy as you can in this life. You realize that? It's your Christian duty to have as much joy as you can in this life. Now, from what this man was saying, and if you watch the paper, read the papers or watch the news, the one thing we're not characterized by as a people is probably joy. One thing that we don't find our, our nation and our, our culture characterized by is happiness and joy. And so I've got to ask, if you're a Christian, what, what characterizes your life? What characterizes your family? Is it joy? Or is it anxiety? Is it joy? Or is it insecurity? You know, is it joy? Deep and abiding joy? Or is it a, a lack of assurance and fear? You see, Lewis wasn't being original and he wasn't being creative when he said that. I was sitting back in the back before I got up here thinking about this. He was just echoing the words of Jesus and, and the words of Paul. If it's your duty to be filled with as much joy as possible, listen to this. I just flipped through. I just started and just looked in John and just stayed in John. Listen to this. Jesus, in his final meal with his disciples, the last time he would spend time with them intimately, talking with them and teaching with them at the Last Supper, in his last time with them, this is what he said. He taught them about what it means to be connected to him and to live in him and to live through him and, and the life that, he was, that was coming to them through him. And he said this, John 15, he said, these things I've spoken to you, all that I've taught you about who I am and what it means to know me and to trust me and to, to live in accordance with me, all the things that I have taught you, these things I've spoken to you, that, you may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Lewis said, it's your duty to be as happy as you possibly can in this life. And Jesus said, everything that I've taught you, all that I have told you about who I am and why I'm here and what I'm doing, all that I have shown you was for your joy. That my joy, the joy of the eternal God, might be in you. And in the same conversation, John 16, 22, he's still talking to him. He says, you may have sorrow now, but I'll see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You may be in a difficult situation now. He said, you know, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not going to be with you, and your hearts may be sorrowful. There may be a, a difficulty you're going through now, but it's okay because your joy, it's in me. And no one can take that from you. 
If your joy is in God, if your joy is in Christ and all that he has taught them about himself and all that he has taught us about himself is for our joy and we find our joy deep and abiding joy in who he is and what he has done, no matter what calamity or sorrow comes, it, it can't be taken. It can't be taken. John 17, he's finished talking to his disciples and now he's going to pray for them. He's getting ready to leave them and now he's going to pray and he's talking to the Father. He's talking to God the Father about his disciples and about us and this is what he says. He says, now I'm coming to you. He's talking to God. He's on his way to the cross. He says, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So everything he taught was for our joy. And when our joy is found in him and in who he is and what he has done, nothing, no calamity, no sorrow can take our joy from us. And then Jesus prays, that our joy might not just be found in him, but that God may do a work in us that we find our only joy in him, that our joy is fulfilled in him. So he has prayed that we not get distracted by other things, that we not look other places to find a joy that's only temporary, that can't really fulfill and that can't really last, but that we find our joy in him. And then Paul, the same guy that wrote Colossians, where we've been, wrote another letter to the church in Rome. Same guy, same thing. He said this, Romans 15, 13. Just a brief look. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Any scholars, you know what the last piece is? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing. All joy. All joy. The fullness of God and the joy in Christ that he prays be ours as we understand who he is and all that he has taught us for our joy comes in believing what he has said about himself and who he is. Joy, real joy, abiding joy, lasting joy, unstealable joy is found in believing who Jesus is and what he has said about himself and in nothing else. Calamities, sorrows, crises, arguments, sicknesses, all of these things come. All of these things can come upon our time, our life, our families, whatever they may be. But when our joy is found in who Jesus is and what he has done, it can't be taken. And it's a joy that fills like nothing else in this world can actually fill. What's at stake in understanding who Jesus is and what he has done ultimately is our joy. I mean, amongst other things, our security, unbelievable benefit, unbelievable fruit of knowing Jesus a security, and we'll talk about it, an assurance that we talked about last week. Unbelievable. But ultimately, what's at stake in this life right now for you who have trusted in Jesus and who Jesus has revealed himself to and to those who he has not even revealed himself to yet, but he's doing, he's working on you. For those who have not even been transformed by him yet, what's at stake in this life right now? Really, your joy. That's the name of the game. What you find hope in. What brings you joy? When there's security, when there's assurance, when there's expectation, you can bet that joy is somewhere lingering nearby. What happens, what happens in this life is that when our sense of certainty begins to get eroded and our sense of security begins to get undermined, or when the lights go down and we're all alone with ourselves and accusations begin to bounce around in our brain. Thoughts begin to 
flood our mind and, and flood our soul. What's at stake is a deep and abiding sense of joy in the person and the work of Jesus. And the question of the morning, somewhat derailed by the prophecy of Obama being the gospel, the question at stake this morning is this. Is Jesus enough for your joy? Simple question. Is he enough? Is Jesus and who he is and what he has done enough for your soul's delight and for your joy? That's the name of the game. That's what's at stake. You will pursue and put your hope and your trust in that which you think will bring you joy. It's the way you're wired. It's your duty to be as happy as you possibly can, and you will pursue that joy. I promise you. You can disagree with me all you want, but you will do it. You will pursue it in any number of things, in any number of ways. You will do and think what you think will bring you the joy that your soul is wired to look for. And the question is, is Jesus enough for it? Is he enough? And if he is, why in the world do you settle for so many things that don't compare? It was the same question in Colossians. Same question to this church. Really no different. It's the essence of what Paul's been talking about in this letter that we've been looking at. Remember, I don't ever miss the, the, the forest, or don't ever miss the wood for the tree, really. Um, we've been looking at these amazing things that Paul has said about the person of Jesus. All these unbelievable excellencies that Paul's unpacked. We've taken them one by one. And we said, what is he saying about who Jesus is, and how does that work itself out in the way we live? And, and Paul was writing all these things for a reason. There is a why to why the what's were put on paper. There's a reason why Paul took very expensive and very hard to, to get scroll and parchment. Remember, they didn't have computers. They didn't have office depots and office maxes and reams of paper and stocks of pencils. They were on parchment. He was in prison. Ink and parchment and the capacity to do what he's doing is not easily to come by. So his words are very pointed. They're very particular. He's not going to waste them. There is a reason why he writes what he writes to this particular church. And, and the issue that was afoot, the thing that was running around, was this temptation we talked about last week, this, this work that was going on, this thing that a person or a group of people were doing, we don't know and it doesn't really matter, that were tempting the people to not see Jesus as superior. That wasn't the question. To not see Jesus as great. But there was a temptation afoot and a deception afoot in the life of this church to no longer see Jesus as sufficient. To no longer see Jesus as enough. He was a great way to start. He was much better than where you came from. But he, in him is not fullness of joy. In him is, is not fullness of life. That's the why for what the Apostle Paul was writing that's the why for all these excellencies that we've been looking at and that we've been unpacking for weeks. That's the why that he did this. Is Jesus enough? Is he sufficient? Or is there something else? Is there something else that you need? You know, we're not that different. The particularities of what they were being tempted by, the deceitful philosophies that Paul was talking about that we looked at last week, the particulars might be a shade different, but the realities and the motivations underlying them, they're really not that different today. We can walk out of this building 
I can take you down this street, and I can take you down that street, and we can head this way and that way, and I can, de- I can drive you to a church that we could walk into where there is a large gathering of people where the prevalent belief is that the purpose for which you have in your life that God has ordained for your life can only be fulfilled as you submit yourself to the anointing of the one leading that church. Jesus was great. He got you saved. But if you want to live the life that God has purposed for you to live, if you want to live the life that Paul talked about in Ephesians, worthy of the call of God, then that will only happen as you submit yourself to the teaching of this particular pastor. And as you walk away, so goes your purpose. So goes your capacity to actually fill that purpose. So what you do, you best obey the pastor. You best listen to what he says and do what he says if you want to actually live the life that God's called you to live with the purpose that he's called you to live. Just down the street, I can take you there. It won't take us five minutes to get there. Lots of people. He's good. Jesus is a great way to get going. It's not enough. You need me. You need me to tell you what to do and how to do it. You need me and my power to actually live the life that God's called you to live. You're not that different. We can go out and drive you down the street. We don't have to go very far either. Probably throw a rock and hit one of these. But there's a church just down the street. There's a station dedicated on the television. There's rows of books dedicated in bookstores to the idea that your joy and your fulfillment can be started by Jesus. He's a great way to get it going, but your joy and your fulfillment is measured by how much God actually prospers the life you live. So the end game is to figure out how to get the most stuff to prove that God loves you the most. And he's enough to get started, but now the measure of my joy is how much I have. And like Paul told the Colossians, there are these plausible lies. There are these empty and hollow, deceitful things because you know what? There's a truth to that. The problem is the measure of prosperity is different than the gospel. The riches to be found in God through Christ are not measured by the gospel. They're measuring them by their accounts, by what they can attain. And we're my heroes John Piper, I don't quote him enough for you. Thought about this and was addressing this plausible lie, this empty deceit, and he said, when was the last time anyone looked at you and said that Jesus is sufficient for my joy? I take Jesus because you drive a BMW. When was the last time anyone said, I take Jesus as my joy because you drive that. If they did, they don't want Jesus. They want the gifts that they think they've given him. And that's not the gospel. That's idolatry. It's heresy. It's a false gospel. It's a plausible lie, an empty deceit. Walk out of this building and drive you down any street. We don't have to go far. It's abounding everywhere. In this little church, not unlike ours, not unlike ours in makeup, not unlike ours in age, not unlike ours in temptations. was under the impression that Jesus was a great way to get going, but he wasn't sufficient for their joy. That he wasn't enough. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. That's why he put these things down. That's why he started, and we started to unpack Paul looking at it and saying, no, no, Jesus, he is fully God. He is fully God, creator of all things, 
Everything that is was created by him, for him, and through him. He is God. He's not just God. He's the head of the church. I'm not, Ray's not, Chris isn't, you're not, collectively we're not, Jesus is. He is the one that has done what he's done to bring us together, and he's the one that leads and guides us as a church. He's the head of the church. He is the creator of all things, and in him all things, he might be preeminent. Not only is he God, not only is he the head of the church, but he is the one who brokered peace between man and God, the one that reconciled man to God. He is the mystery of God revealed for all generations. He is the one in Jesus that revealed God's long-awaited mystery for how God was going to make right all things that have gone wrong, how God was going to take a sinful man and reconcile him to himself and then reconcile two sinful men together, how he was going to abolish the real distinctions that were keeping people apart. The fullness of God revealed the mystery of God in the gospel revealed in Jesus. And last week, the, the wisdom, the treasures, and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God in Jesus. This is who he is. And Paul takes his time deliberately to unpack for this church who Jesus is because you've got to get it right. Who Jesus is because his sufficiency, not even really his existence anymore, but his sufficiency is under attack. And when his sufficiency is under attack, and when his sufficiency is undermined in your soul, so goes your assurance, so goes your security, and ultimately so goes your joy. And you will find yourself running about to any number of things, seeking to find a joy that you can only find in Jesus himself. And Paul lays all these great things about Jesus out, all these things we've looked at. And then there's a section of verses that we're going to look at today that he begins to then unpack what difference they make, what difference they really make, what, outside of who he is, now what has he done? How does that bring joy? How does that bring security? You've got your Bible, look at chapter two. These are really fun. I'm gonna have a lot of fun with these. Um, Colossians chapter two. You want joy? You want assurance, you want security and confidence. Look at this, Colossians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 9. I'm going to read it through and then we're going to pick it apart. For in him, in Jesus, not president elects and not other empty philosophies, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Listen to this. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me pray real quick and then we'll unpack these. Jesus, we are, uh, we are in a fight for our, we're in a fight for our joy. But there's a number of things that are seeking to steal our our hope, seeking to steal our happiness, seeking to distract us from being satisfied in who you are, from finding you as fully sufficient. 
So Jesus, I just ask you to engage this battle with us. Lord, you take the truths of your word, the truths about you, and the truths about what you have done, and you make them alive. And you let them be foundations for joy. Let them be sparks for joy and passion to be ignited in our hearts. Let them be steel, like we talked about last week, in our spine during times of calamity or sorrow that can never be taken. That can never be taken away because they're found in you. Lord, we ask this, as always, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen. Verse 10, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and he's the head and rule of all authority. Sandwiched between those two amazing statements about who Jesus is, the fullness of deity, we spent a week on this, the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form in Jesus, the fullness of God's love and his wisdom and his power and his mercy dwelling in the person of Jesus, who is the head of all rule and all authority. There is nothing in creation, nothing that exists, that exerts any level of authority over Jesus. He rules and reigns over all things that are. Sandwiched between those two amazing things, it says, in him you have been filled. You have been filled. The fullness of all that God is has filled in his filling who you are. What in the world, honestly, what in the world can compete and compare with that? The fullness of God, all that he is, all of his mercy, all of his wisdom, all of his love, all of it, is now filling you in Jesus. And Paul says, do not be deceived by these plausible lies, by these empty deceits that have a ring of truth, that there's a a truthiness to them, a, a ring of wisdom. Don't be deceived by them. They're running around, and they are after your soul, and they are after your joy. And behind them, Paul said, lie the human traditions of man, and ultimately, an allegiance to the elemental spirits of the world. There's a demonic influence behind these ideas that seek to rob your joy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And Paul says, Jesus sits over all things, over all rule and over all authority. And all the fullness of God is in him and you have been filled in him. Why in the world would you settle for anything less? Why in the world would you settle for such a superficial sense of joy that comes from thinking that what you have proves how much God loves you. Or what you have in your house and in your garage proves how much God loves you when what he has done in Jesus has said once and for all how much he loves you and how valuable he is. Why settle for anything less when you have God in Christ? You know, the whole hope of the advent, the whole hope of the incarnation is that God took on flesh, and that Jesus is the fullness of God. The best part, the theme of Colossians, what's going to be unpacked in weeks to come, is that now you're in him. You are in him. You can be found in Jesus, in the fullness of God. Let me ask. Let me ask if you're, now phrase this. 
if you're not a Christian. And let me say, if you are, what does your pursuit of joy and fulfillment end up filling you with? How's it going? I mean, how's the search going for you? Is it giving you what it's promised? What do you really get from all of those things that is in any way comparable to the fulfillment found in Jesus? I don't know. Think about it. You've got to answer that one. Look at verse 11. In him, in Jesus, this is a fun one. We bring out the snakes, we bring out the lambs, now we're going to bring out the scalpels and half of you are going to leave. In him, you were circumcised <laughs> with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What's he saying? Simple, very simple. Don't make it too complicated. In Jesus, you're not only filled with the fullness of God, you're not only connected to God and relating to God by being in him, He's given you an absolutely new nature. What Paul's talking about here is really simple. He hasn't just connected you to God and filled you with God. He's absolutely made you a new person. You're an absolutely new creation. You have an absolutely new nature. See, in the, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of being part of the covenant that God had made with his people. And, and God had set his people apart from all the surrounding nations, and, and he told his people to circumcise all the males as a sign of the covenant. So, aren't you glad that all you have to do to be a part of the church is Fall out of form. I mean, some of you balked at having to sign your name on a form. We could, it could go back old school on you and, and go circumcision, but you want to? Dan is now the elder in charge of circumcision. Um, that was a sign of being a part of God's covenant people in the Old Testament. And so that would happen to all the males as they were born on the eighth day as a sign and seal of being a part of God's promise and a part of God's covenant. But that was always an external reality that was pointing to a future fulfillment spiritually. It was always pointing to something that God would do ultimately in the hearts of his people, that this was an external reality of something that God was doing internally. In fact, in one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, we won't read it, but Exodus 30. And Deut actually, no, Deuteronomy 30. Sorry, Deuteronomy 30. Moses is giving his last speech to the people of Israel before they go into the Promised Land. He's led them through the wilderness and all of their grumbling and all of their failings and God has provided and cared for them throughout the entire process, and now they're on the precipice of getting into the land and the place that God's promised, and Moses can't go because he disobeyed God, and, and God said you can't get in there. And, and so Moses is rehearsing the covenant for the people, the promises of God and the story of God and the purpose of God and how he's cared for them and how he's led them and how he's fed them and how he's pastored them and how he's taken them here and how he's going to fulfill their promise, his promise to them and his expectations that they have on God and the expectations that God has on them and he says this in, in chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. What Paul is talking about, and now in Jesus, you've been circumcised by a circumcision that's made without hands, is that that old promise, that old physical reality that used to happen in the Old Testament that marked you out by God's people has now been done to your heart 
the fulfillment of God's promise to his people is that he would come and he would cut away the sinful body of flesh from your heart. He would perform an internal circumcision on your soul and cut away your flesh and give you a new heart that you might live and love him, that you might walk in his ways, not because you have to, but because you want to. What Paul is talking about is that in Jesus, you have an entirely new nature. You are a new creation. It's theologically what we call regeneration. Your heart has been made new. You are a new person. You are a new creation, not by some act of flesh that man did to you, but by something God promised that he would do that that was looking forward to. And he has done it in Jesus, in your heart. And then Paul says that crazy little thing, how do we explain this? He'd been buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All he's saying is now baptism is now that external reality. It is that external reaction and and reality to what God had done internally in your heart. So as God circumcised your heart by his spirit and he's cut away that body of flesh, that sinful nature, that self-ego-filled nature, that that part of you, that, that sinful aspect of you that sought to bring yourself your own glory and to not bring glory to God. He's cut that away in baptism. It's a physical display. It's a physical action. It's an external reality of what's happened in your heart as you've been identified with Jesus in his death, and now you've identified with him in his burial when you go under the water, and then you're raised to newness of life as you come up out of the water just as Jesus was raised from the dead. It's an external reflection of what God has done in your heart. And Paul said, in Jesus, you've been made an absolutely new creation. That old man was nailed upon the cross in the circumcision of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the the stripping away of the body and flesh of Jesus on the cross. That old self was nailed to the cross with Jesus, identified with him in, in, in death and burial. That old self, that old nature, went with Jesus to the tomb. And when Jesus was raised to the fullness of life, that old nature stayed in the tomb And Jesus walked out in fullness of life, and with it came a new nature for you. Your old self stayed with him, and he's given you the fullness of life in him in his resurrection. You're absolutely different. What that means, and he's given you a new nature, what that means is that now when you sin, when you disregard God, when you disregard his glory, when you act in ways that seek to bring yourself your own glory and not God, you're not doing it because it's your nature. You see, earlier, we'll get to it. He talks about it in a second. When you're born, you're born into sin, and you have a sinful nature. That's who you are when you're born. And so when you sin, you're just acting according to your nature. But what Paul is saying is that in transformation, in regeneration, when God circumcises your heart and cuts away that sinful self, what happens is that when you sin, now when you disregard God, you do it contrary to nature. Now you're not acting according to who you are. It's contrary It used to be according to who you are, but now it's contrary to who you are, and you can, by his spirit, understand what you're doing and repent and turn, realizing that that's not who you are. You are not that person. You are not that thing. You are not that sin. You're an absolutely new creation. In Jesus, in Jesus alone, that old self was nailed to the cross. In Jesus, that old self was taken to the tomb and given death and burial. And in Jesus, when he came out of that tomb, your old self stayed down there. It did not come out with him. Out of the tomb came fullness of life and joy in Jesus. And he's given that to you. What in the world, what in the world can come close to promising the 
the same kind of transformation in your life that Jesus does? What? I mean, I can think of the things that tempt me. I I can think of the things that distract me. I can think of the things that I think will bring me the kind of change and the kind of fulfillment that I'm looking for. But when it comes down to it, what in your life that you're pursuing or that you're searching for, that you're taking for yourself, can in any way do for you what Jesus promised to do for you? And can they even do the things that they're promising you that they can do? In Jesus, you have fullness of life, fullness of the Godhead, fullness of the divinity of Jesus. And you have an absolutely new nature. You've been made absolutely new. One of the best parts. One of the best parts. Look at the next verse, verse 13. And you, he's talking to me, he's talking to you, he's talking to all of us, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You've been filled with all the fullness of Jesus. You've been given a new nature in Jesus to love him fully for who he is out of a heart that longs and desires to know him and to honor him. And now you get to the crux of the matter. You've been made alive and you've been forgiven of all of your sins. Fulfillment, new nature, new heart. Now you're alive to the realities of God, forgiven of all of your sins. It's probably one of the most offensive realities to Western people and American people. But when you are born, you are dead to the realities of God. You are dead to the realities of God's grace in Jesus and the redemptive power of Jesus in the gospel message. You are dead to that. You're not born alive to it, and then through your home, you become deadened and and dull to it. That TV distracts you and tells you something. No, you are born dead to the realities of God, and there are no bootstraps that you can grab a hold of and pull yourself up to to all of a sudden make yourself alive and, and, and acknowledge the realities of God. You're dead to them. But in Jesus, in Jesus, Paul says, you have been made alive. Your heart, your soul has been made alive to the realities of God in Christ. And now there's something that your heart desires and longs to know and to be fulfilled by. And how does he do it? I love it. It's the passive. Did you notice the passive nature of all these verbs? How does he do it? He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. He did it, not you. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, setting aside, nailing it to the cross. Back in the day, when you owed somebody something, when you were indebted to somebody, they would create this document that was like a legal IOU. And on that document, it had all the conditions for repayment, all the debt that you owed, and all of the demands that were against you if you didn't repay it. What Paul is saying is that our sin has created this legal IOU towards God. That everything that we have done in sin has added to the debt that we owe God and that there is this legal document that stands against us. That we were created to glorify God with who we are and what we did and the motivations of all that we are. But in sin, everything was corrupted. And see, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker with this. 
You were born dead in sin and trespasses, which means everything you did, whether it looked good or looked bad, was not for God's glory because you were not alive to the realities of God. So even your good deeds stood against you as debts toward God. There was nothing that you did, nothing. No matter how much food you took to the food bank, before God made you alive in Christ, it stood against you as a, as a debt towards God and his glory. And so there's this huge IOU that we have towards God because of our sin and a sinful human, no matter how many of us we gather together, can never pay back the debt that we owe to God. And what Paul said is that in Jesus, he took the debt that we owed to God because of our sin upon himself on the cross and he offered himself up as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for the debt that we owe to God that we could never pay for ourselves. And in that sacrifice, God accepted it as valid and wiped away the debt that we owed to God. What would happen when you paid that debt is that they would literally take water in a cloth and scrub the debt that you owed off of that IOU. And what Paul has said is that Jesus has wiped away the debt that we owed to God because of our sin by taking our sin upon himself and nailing it to the cross in his body of flesh and taking the holy wrath of God upon himself that was due to us. You've been forgiven. There is no debt that hangs over you. If you are a Christian and Jesus has transformed you and is transforming you, you do not need to worry about this. Once and for all, this IOU has been wiped away and is not to be written again. In his body on the cross, Jesus dealt with the debt that we owed God. The justice of God could not be defamed by overlooking it. God's justice is holy and he could not pass over our sin. So instead of dealing with us according to our sin, he dealt with Jesus in our place. And you've been forgiven. You have been forgiven. Listen to me. You have been forgiven. One of the greatest stories. I love this. I can't see the clock, so let me walk around. All right. One of the greatest stories in, 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 in the history of the church, in the Reformation, about this guy Martin Luther. He's my favorite of the Reformers, my absolute favorite. Um, and there's a story about Luther that he was, he was asleep one night, um, and he, was, he had just... His heart had just been made alive to the realities of the gospel uh, and God taking upon our sins upon himself and justifying us in his, in his life and in his death. And it had just become a reality to him, really. But before that, he was one of the most self-punishing people in all the earth. He would spend hours in confession trying to get all of his sins out because of the weight of guilt that he felt. God. The debt, he was so aware of the debt that he owed to God and how sinful he was, he could not get it free. And the gospel was made alive to him as he was reading scripture and God just ripped his heart open. It says one night he was sleeping and in his sleep, in a dream, Satan came to him. And underneath his arm, he had just stacks of scrolls. And Luther said he was frightened, terrified to his core, he said. And he said, well, Satan began to unroll the scroll, and Luther saw that all the handwriting was his own. And the handwriting on the, on the scroll was his own handwriting telling the story of his life and all of his sins before God. And he said, Satan just said one thing. He says, is this true? And Luther said, in, in fear and in absolute trembling, he said, yes. And Satan just began to open scroll after scroll after scroll of all of his sins in his own handwriting, condemning himself to his own sins. And as he got ready to leave, Luther said he was taken as low as a human could be, that he was absolutely 
in, 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 I can't remember the word he used. Um, he was absolutely slayed in, in his own sense of sin. And Satan was leaving. And Luther said, it's all true. Everything you just said is true. But right across the scroll, the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses us from all sin. It's been done. All true. You have sinned and owe a massive debt before God. But the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin and all unrighteousness. You have been forgiven. You do not need to lay awake. I don't know that. You do not need to lay awake under the weight at night of the things that you know have captured your heart and captured your soul and the things that you have done that did not bring honor to God. You do not have to lay awake under the weight of those things anymore thinking that he is mad at you and that you're amassing this, this IOU and this debt that hangs above your head anymore. It's been done. It's been forgiven. There is a security and an assurance that is yours because of who Jesus is and what he has done. When the security and the assurance is there, joy is there. It does not matter what happens to your house. It does not matter what happens to your family. It does not matter what happens to your health. In the midst of those circumstances, joy is there because the things that are most important, who you are before God, has been defined and it's been set. And you can have joy in the midst of the most dark circumstances because of who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus. And Paul's saying, why in the world, why in the world would we let ourselves be so deceived by these plausible, empty lies about what we think will actually bring us fulfillment in this life when Jesus has done all of this on our behalf and we are found in him? And in him, we are filled with everything that is him. Why in the world do we settle for so many lesser things? He's reconciled us to God. He's filled us with the fullness of God. He's given us a new heart. He's given us a new nature. He's made us alive to God. He's forgiven us of our sins. And he said he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle, he said, of Satan and the demonic powers. What he's talking about is another picture. It's just a string of pictures, all saying that on the cross, what looked like absolute defeat in the beginning when he was born, Satan tried to end this thing by having... The, the, the babies, the, the male babies of the Hebrew women killed and Jesus was spared and now in the end of his life, what looks like apparent defeat, what looks like final defeat on the part of Satan, Jesus hanging on a cross, bloody to his death, buried in a tomb, what looked like defeat, unfortunately, was actually victory, what Paul's saying. What he's saying is that in his death and then subsequently in his resurrection, there's this great picture that back in those days when a Roman emperor would go and conquer a land. They would parade themselves back home by taking all of the spoils, all of the property, all of the possessions of the land they conquered and pile them up in these wagons. And they would parade them back into their home and back into Rome with this huge ceremony. And slowly these wagons would parade with all the stuff that they had taken. And then all the slaves of that land would come behind them. Then all the soldiers they had conquered would come behind them. Then all the soldiers' weapons and all their shields would come behind them. And then ultimately the family and the kids of the emperor and the ruler of the land would come behind them. And then in the very last wagon, there would be the emperor that had been conquered, tied up in his hands, usually naked, tied behind the wagon, being taken through the land. And behind him would be the conquering general, coming in in triumph, having paraded sometimes for days 
all of the spoils, making a public spectacle of the shame of the person that they had defeated. What Paul is saying is that not only has Jesus done all of this, but he made a public spectacle of the weakness of Satan, of the weakness of all powers and authorities that stand in his presence. He made them look as weak as they actually are. And what looked like apparent defeat for Jesus was the sign of the greatest victory. And all of this is a reality for us as we find ourselves in him. All of this is meant to bring the fullness of joy that can only be found in him. And we find ourselves so distracted, so easily susceptible to these empty deceits and these plausible lies and these things that try to tell us that Jesus is great but he's not sufficient. What else do we actually need? We have been forgiven and made alive. We've been made new and given a new heart. We've been reconciled to God and connected to God and in fellowship to so much so that we find ourselves in him and the fullness of him is in us. What else? What else? Make Christmas lists this time of the year. What else could you really, what could you really want? I mean, do you wake up? And I know I don't, so don't, don't beat yourself. Do you wake up? a daily basis with a recognition of who you are in him. The new nature, the new heart, the forgiveness of sin, the abject shame of all principalities and powers. Do you wake up and begin your day with a reality and acknowledgement of who you are in Jesus? You want joy. You want joy? Is there an absence of joy in your life, in your home? Try this. Wake up and remind yourself of who you are. Really, not who you are as the businessman or the attorney or the athlete or whatever. Remind yourself of who you are because of Jesus. Remind yourself, tell yourself. Don't wait for me or for the podcast to be preached to. Preach to yourself. Tell yourself who you are because of him and let that put steel in your spine throughout the day and joy in your soul. I mean, look at the rest of the circumstances you face, positive and negative, in light of these things. This is joy. This is joy, to be found in him and to know him, to be in the presence of God, not just in eternity, but now, transformed. Let me pray for us, because they're going to hide the clock, and I'm going to keep going. Jesus, one, one thing, one thing I ask, Lord, make your sufficiency a reality to our soul. We are assaulted every day with things that tell us that you are not enough, with things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of you, with things that seek, from things that seek to put themselves in your rightful place and promise us what they can never deliver. Lord, help us to wake up and to live day in and day out from a greater and more maturing knowledge of your sufficiency and who you are. Do this by your spirit. Lay our hearts open. Lay our hearts open before you. Lord, and then strengthen them and bind them together. We ask this, Lord, for your glory. Amen.